I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Karen Fox. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 27, 2024. Coming up, we'll explore the discovery of the world's largest deep-sea coral reef. And then, the emerging and controversial developments of deep-sea mining. Our guests are Casey Cantwell of the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration and Farah Obdayat, founder of Oceans and Us, a conservation advocacy group. You're listening to KGNU's Science Show. I'm Kara Fox. Recently, scientists made a big discovery. They mapped the largest deep-sea coral reef in the world. It's located roughly 80 to 200 miles off the Atlantic coast, spanning from Florida to South Carolina. It's about the size of Vermont, and it's the biggest discovery of its kind to date. The news comes as a bright spot for oceans and marine life. As acidification and marine heat waves related to climate change have been destroying coral reefs around the world. Here with us to explain this discovery, how it happened, and why it's important, is Casey Cantwell. She's the Operations Chief for the Expeditions and Exploration Division of NOAA. That's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Ms. Cantwell is based in Silver Spring, Maryland. She joins us via Zoom. Casey, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks for having me. Casey, can you tell us a little bit about this discovery? Was it a surprise for everyone involved in the project? Uh, sure, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, so it was it started, I'd say, probably back in about 2012 with some uh, just transit mapping that was done in the area. Uh, there was a lot that we knew about there being coral in, um, in the area, but not to the extent that we ended up finding it. And as we were mapping, we found these series of mounds that we thought were really interesting and really exciting because we hadn't quite realized how many mounds there might be. But in the survey that we conducted, the first little group, we couldn't find an end to the mounds. And then uh, from 2016 through to uh, 2022, we spent a bunch more time mapping the same area, sort of systematically building the map across the Blake Plateau. And continued to not find the end of these mounds and how connected they were and how um, dense they were, I think, was what was really a surprise for us. Not that they were there, just how vast that habitat was. And can you tell us a little bit about um, the size? We mentioned that it's the size, read that it's the size of Vermont or three times the size of Yellowstone. How wide and how long is this uh, Is this reef? So the... Uh, the most people really struggle with like the, the the scientific nomenclature that we use when we talk about certain amount of meters or square kilometers. So the size of Vermont is a great uh, estimate. Um, the mound features span about 310 miles by um, 68 miles wide, and then there's um, core areas that are different different amounts of coral throughout, which is really exciting. And then um, uh, the other thing that we like to say is people think about like acres in terms of their house or property. And if you think about this area, it actually encompasses 6.4 million acres. That's massive. Um, so how much larger than previously discovered deep sea reefs is this one then? Are there many like this in the Blake Plateau? 
So on the Blake Plateau, this the area that we mapped pretty much covers the entire area of the Blake Plateau. There are definitely a little bit of shallower reefs in the area, and we knew about a couple of those, and we knew about pockets of the coral that we studied. Um, we knew about that to some extent in certain areas. It was just how big this whole area was and how connected it was that was new here. Um, I'd say that, to be honest, it's hard to say that um, there's not another one like this out there because there's so little that's known about the deep sea and it's so little of um, our planet's oceans have actually been mapped that we can't say there's not another one out there because we just don't have the data yet. It's the biggest one to date, which is exciting. It's very exciting. And as you were saying, the deep ocean, we're talking about 200 meters all the way down to the bottom of the seafloor is often not part of the ocean that most people are connected to, right? So one misconception, I think, is that we, the deep ocean is, you know, devoid of life or there's nothing down there, but we know that's not true. So what sort of life did you find down there? Uh, this is actually probably my favorite question that I get is just getting to share with people what we get to see. So um, anything from corals and sponges, which people are somewhat familiar with if you think of a coral reef, they're similar and related animals on the deep sea. Then there are these bright and colorful fish. There are these squat lobsters, which are probably the most awkward animal you've ever seen with these big, long, extended arms that they, uh, always make me laugh personally every time we see one. Uh, we certainly saw... Um, a diversity of different crabs uh, and a lot of different fish. And building on that, what role do we see the, this habitat, this deep sea habitat play in the larger oceanic ecosystem and even the atmosphere? What what did, what did does this life um, look like for the rest of the world, essentially? So I think the, the best way to put this in perspective is a lot of kids learn about um, the importance of rainforests uh, in school. And when you think about the, the marine equivalent, these types of biodiversity hotspots like these reefs can be essentially the equivalent from the corals kind of act like trees where they are providing the structure where lots of organisms are drawn to. Um, they provide um, a lot of habitat structure for organisms in the deep sea. And then all the other animals sort of begin to aggregate around them. So you'll see commercially important fish um, and many different things that we rely on for supporting our fisheries, whether it be food for the animals that we eat or whether it be the animals themselves. Um, we saw several commercially important species off the southeast uh, coast on these reef habitats. And does this habitat also play into carbon storage, for example? It, it certainly can. Um, that's not my particular field of expertise. But um, these habitats do have an interesting role to play in terms of both carbon transport from the surface of the ocean down to the deep sea, um, and then in terms of providing habitat for organisms as the oceans change. Thanks, Casey. Um, another question for you here. Are deep sea reefs anywhere near as vulnerable to climate change or ocean acidification as more shallow reefs, which have suffered major losses in recent years? Yeah, so this is something that is a hot topic in this field. Um, it's not one that I think I have a perfect answer to because it's still being studied. To get access to the deep sea is really hard, whether it's very far offshore or whether it's um, basically just, it takes a lot of resources and equipment to be able to get down to the depths that we're talking about. And in a lot of cases, we're just now getting the foundational data that supports these long-term change over time. Um, certainly with any trend of changing climate, changing oceans, 
there's going to be vulnerable ecosystems. But for the deep sea, in a lot of cases, we're just getting the foundation of data to be able to monitor for change over time. Um, but there are some really cool studies that are going on right now where people have taken deep sea corals and are incubating them and putting them in environments um, with different acidification levels. And those studies are ongoing. And you see some, sometimes you see a similar response to what we're seeing in shallow water corals. But in many cases, we're still just doing that foundational information gathering. And just a final question here for you. Do we expect to find more habitats such as these as technology advances? And if we do, um, how do we protect these habitats? So absolutely. I definitely think that we are we are poised to find any number of new habitats. Um, pretty much every time we go and look in the deep sea, we're finding something new, whether that be a new species, a new habitat, uh, revealing a, a giant new habitat that we didn't know much about before. Um, every time we explore the ocean, we're learning new things. So definitely, yes. And as technology gets more autonomous, gets higher resolution, it gets cheaper to go deeper, we're going to see all sorts of new discoveries. And what was the second part of your question? How do we protect these habitats? Oh. So um, that's where I think for us, a lot of our role is collecting the data so that we can actually have informed science management decisions. So my office, NOAA Ocean Exploration, isn't involved in the act of managing these habitats, but we do work really closely with resource managers to identify where they have data gaps up front and where they don't understand things enough to make informed management decisions. And then from there, we process the data, clean it up, and then hand it back to them and say, hey, this is what we learned in this area. And they take it from there. Um, and sometimes you'll see new protections coming into place. You'll see um, designations of monuments and marine protected areas. It really depends on who the resource manager is and, and sort of where we are with that. Great. Casey, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That was Casey Cantwell, the Operations Chief for the Expeditions and Exploration Division of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. For those who've just joined late, you're listening to KGNU Science Show. My host, Kara Fox, just interviewed Casey Cantwell of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration about a recent discovery of the world's largest deep-sea coral reef. So stay tuned for Kara's next interview about deep-sea mining. find out more about what lies in the depths of our oceans, such as deep-sea coral reefs, a growing number of countries are pushing to safeguard them from overfishing and from mining the deep seas. Although commercial deep-sea mining has not yet begun, some companies are moving rapidly to exploit the ocean floor for commercial use. These companies are aiming to harness critical minerals, manganese, nickel, copper, cobalt, and others that are found at the bottom of the ocean. Some of these minerals, so-called rare earth elements, are critical for the production of electric vehicle batteries, cell phones, and wind turbines. Many scientists and environmentalists argue that deep-sea mining will destroy ecosystems and species. Here to connect the dots between deep-sea coral reefs and the development field, developing field of deep-sea mining is Farah Obaidula, founder of the conservation group Oceans and Us. She's also the editor of, of a book of the same name. Farah, welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Kara, for having me. Uh, just just a quite a small correction. It's uh, the ocean and us for the, both the book and, and the NGO. Yeah. My apologies. <laughs> Thanks, Farah. Yeah. No worries. No worries. Thanks for joining the show here. Um, could you unpack for our listeners here just what exactly is deep sea mining? Sure. Well, by its very name, deep sea mining, it, it's it's basically mining the deep sea. And you've just heard from uh, from Casey, uh, you know, all the sort of wonderful and uh, life that we're just discovering in the deep ocean. And deep sea mining is basically um, uh, the idea is to 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 lower big bulldozer type vehicles into the ocean floor, some four to six kilometers deep. I'm not sure what that is in miles, but. I, I'm guessing something like three miles into the ocean floor, lower them onto the seafloor, and then essentially strip mine that that ocean bottom in in search of these metals. So there are three types of deep sea mining, but the one that's the most imminent is uh, deep sea mining on the abyssal plains. And on the abyssal plains sit these polymetallic nodules. They're coal-sized lumps uh, rich in metals. And these are the nodules that miners are seeking. Uh, but in doing so, they're basically going to trash everything on the seafloor, suck up these nodules to them to the uh, to the surface of the ocean, process them, and then discharge all that wastewater, which will be full of heavy metals, back into the ocean. Um, and just coming back to these nodules, uh, they take millions of years to form. Mm -hmm. So they are not a renewable resource as, um, you know, as, as you know, you might think because we, we want those mineral minerals for the energy transition, but they, the nodules themselves are not renewable. And, and because they are millions of years old, they also form, uh, you know, over those millions of years have formed essential habitat for, uh, for life that lives in the deep sea. And who can we talk a little bit about who wants to do this process and why are they advocating for this over terrestrial mining, for example? Sure. So the argument which you which you presented at the start of the show is that, you know, we need these metals for the energy transition. Well, in fact, that's an argument that is only being peddled by the prospective um, miners, deep sea miners, because in fact, studies show that we don't need those minerals from the deep sea and that battery technology is advancing so quickly that if we look at electric vehicle battery chemistry today and into the future, they already do not require the nickel, nickel, cobalt, manganese that the miners argue we need from the seafloor. Um, so I, uh, that that in itself is a reason, you know, not to 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 go into the sea, uh, to go into the deep sea for these minerals. Um, the the miners also argue that we need to go into the deep sea because it is a more environmentally friendly way of of um, of of. Uh, of of sourcing minerals as opposed to terrestrial mining because on land you know there's uh, child labor involved and of course it's also not sometimes child labor labor involved not always but and um and it's often also not sort of done to to very high standards but i would argue that we can improve terrestrial mining and make sure that uh, you know that we are more efficient in what we extract from land that we regenerate areas properly and that we you know have high high standards when it comes to contamination when it comes to areas we mine and when it comes to labor uh, labor rights whereas in the ocean in the deep sea it will be almost impossible to effectively regulate because we are talking about three miles deep into the ocean and it will be um, practically uh, impossible to hold any country to account because the area that these miners seek to mine are areas in what are known as the high seas and these are areas beyond the borders of any one country. 
So this means that no single country has jurisdiction over this area, but that also means that it's like a wild west. And if uh, if co companies and countries go and mine there, there's no court or no regulatory body that can really see what's going on that deep and really hold them hold them to account because that would require political will from from one country to take to take another country to court over any breaches or um, uh, <clears throat> yeah or destruction. So. And you yeah. and you were talking about um, regulation. Who would regulate this practice? Um, and why would why is this year so crucial for um, for for this conversation? Right. Well, at the moment, the um, uh, the International Seabed Authority, which is uh, is the regulatory body, they were set up um, uh, decades ago, um, and they're quite they're archaic. They're not fit for purpose. When they were set up, their mandate was to regulate any mining activities that would occur in the deep sea, and at the same time protect the deep sea um, uh, from any severe uh, harm for the benefit of all humankind. Uh, well, that's first of all such a contradiction in terms because the practice of deep sea mining is so severe that it will cause irreversible destruction. Uh, but also, it was developed in a time when. Uh, when policymakers were not concerned about the climate crisis or biodiversity crisis that we currently are facing. And so, and that's what I mean when I say that the ISA is currently not fit for purpose, it is archaic, um, and we need to really bring that regulatory body into the 21st century if we are going to be serious about um, about opening up areas beyond national jurisdiction for, for any kind of extractive, extractive activity. And in fact, I would argue we should leave the high seas alone and um, uh, as, a, as an area of, of peace and science. As you, we just heard from Casey, I mean, there's so much to discover in the deep ocean and so many more deep sea reefs uh, that could yield enormous benefits in terms of science um, and medicine. So I think it's, uh, it's yeah, it, 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 it would be respon the responsible thing to do to say, hey, you know, the areas that don't belong to any country, let's leave those alone. And as you just mentioned, you know, these new advances and discoveries are so so important to this to understanding what's what's below our oceans and at the bottom um such as what happened in the Blake Plateau and we also had this recent discovery in Chile where deep sea explorers may have found more than 100 species completely new to science so that shows us what we do know and what we don't know about the deep ocean um how does that apply to the thinking around deep sea mining well, it, it unfortunately, we're not seeing much of that thinking. Uh, there, uh, there is deep sea mining has actually just come upon us. It's been it's been in development for, of course, for a while now. But it's really the rush to mine the deep sea has only really advanced in the last uh, few years. And while you know we've been dealing with a global pandemic and wars and you know the climate crisis, biodiversity crisis, and when you look at who is actually pushing for deep sea mining, it's not the scientists, uh, it's not you know uh, policymakers. It's it, the, actually there's such a resistance. It's not the companies. It's not corporations. Um, there's such a resistance to this to this uh, to this ind speculative industry, and um, yeah, I, I, to. to I haven't, in my experience, I have not um, seen any any thought given to undiscovered species or the benefit of, uh, you know, what the deep sea uh, could yield. You know, the undiscovered benefit, the innate benefit, uh, the collective benefit of the deep sea. That has never come into discussion. It's usually just about what can the deep sea um, mean in terms of money and profit for a single country or for a single company. 
And you mentioned that um, some technologists say that the technology around EV batteries, for example, is changing so rapidly that these batteries might not necessarily even need to rely on these minerals in the future. Um, yeah, so who, who is, who is, and we know actually that uh, there are some, um, there are some major companies that have also signed up for a moratorium around deep sea mining uh, and countries as well. So who is pushing for a more string, stringent, regulations or a complete moratorium on this uh, on this industry yeah that's right when when the rush to open up the deep sea started uh you know we were living in a different sort of time in terms of technology and battery chemistry and uh in the, it just in you know in in the last few years we've seen many companies electric vehicle companies like bmw like volkswagen like renault like volvo uh scania and and many others including electric vehicle startup companies Rivian, for example, uh, come out and um, support a moratorium on deep sea mining on the high seas, uh, as well as pledge not to source minerals from the deep sea uh, for for their supply chains. And, you know, of course, they're doing this out of out of a concern for the deep sea, perhaps. But importantly, they're doing this because they know that battery chemistry is changing and they have the foresight to see that they won't be needing those metals going forward. And if you look at, for example, uh, BYD, which one is one of the, if not the second or third largest electric vehicle company in the world, they already don't use um, those metals in their battery chemistry. They they use um, uh, different chemistries like lithium ion sulfate or sodium ion batteries. Um, so there's this whole, you know, sort of research and innovation and even deployment of different chemistries. Because if you think about it, if we want to transition away from the current um, uh, you know, uh, battery technology or current fossil fuel cars, I should say, to electric vehicle cars. That means taking, you know, over a billion cars off the road and uh, making them uh, or, and, and replacing them with electric cars. But to do that, we, we can't use um, uh, rare or precious metals because they're simply not abundant or cheap enough to make it cost effective. I mean, if we look at electric vehicle cars of that we're used to seeing on the roads over the past decade or so, they are usually reserved for the elite, you know, for people with disposable income to spend on, on such a status symbol. But if we all want to go electric and if we want to see mass transit become electric, we absolutely need chemistry that is affordable and abundant and clean and, 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 and uh, sustainable. And that is simply not going into the ocean depths and collecting uh, you know, uh, precious uh, rare earth metals in such a violent and destructive manner. Um, so yeah, and these companies know that. And it's not just car companies, it's also tech uh, tech companies like Google and Samsung and Philips and many gaming companies. They're all coming out and saying, well, wait a minute, we, we never said we need those metals and, and, and uh, you know, we support a moratorium on deep sea mining. And just bringing this conversation back to the coral reefs that Casey was talking about earlier in the Blake Plateau off the U.S. Atlantic coast, um, there was an article from journalist Clara Feisler of the Post and Courier that detailed some connections between this area and deep sea mining for an article for the Post and Courier last week. The first, the world's first seabed mining test was conducted back there in the 1970s, and a scientist, Jason Chador, located this site in 2016 and found that the damage done more than four decades ago is still there. He said, quote, it looked like they were there yesterday. So proponents of deep sea bed mining are going to argue that the technology has changed enough to mitigate that damage, but... Um, opponents, of course, will say that the risk isn't worth the gain. The question is, do we know enough about the impacts on our oceans and marine life to protect it from this harm? 
I mean, no, no, we absolutely don't. I mean, um, in fact, 99% of the deep sea is yet to be discovered. And of course, the efforts of Casey and others is, uh, is, is reducing that number. But we still have so much to learn about the deep sea. And to say that technology is changing uh, to mitigate those impacts, I mean, think about it. Technology is not... Uh, a living organism. And so as soon as you remove ancient ecosystem, however you do it, uh, that's not going to come back on human timescales. And that's the big difference between terrestrial mining, which I'm no proponent of by any means in its current form. But you can say, okay, you know what, we're going to... Um, we're going to mine this area and we're going to regenerate it. And in 40 to 100 to 300 years, we're going to see forests return, for example. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that the way we do it currently is uh, is in, in any way good, but in the deep sea, as the, as uh, as you just mentioned, 40 years on, and it looks like they were there yesterday. It doesn't matter what technology you put down there; it's ancient ecosystems. It will not return. I mean, we heard from Casey. We're talking about thousands of years old corals that live down there. We're talking about sponges that can live up to 10,000 years. And we're talking about fish that can be several hundred years old. So this is history down there, you know, and, and you if you take it away with whatever technology you can think of, it will not come back on human timescales. Farah, thank you so much for your expertise and for speaking to us today. Thank you for having me. And please do check out The Ocean and Us. That was Farah Obaidullah, editor of The Oceans and Us and founder of the advocacy group with the same name. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. Show was produced by me, Kara Fox, as well as Susan Moran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. And it was engineered by Sam Fuqua. Visit our website on howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and X. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303 447 9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Kara Fox. Music